What it do, what it do, bitches, what it do. How's everybody doing today? How is everybody doing? Let me lower, I had to lower the gain on the volume just a little bit <clears throat> for my microphone. Um, last time I spoke to you, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was alive. Now I'm speaking to you, and uh, I believe the word for her is dead. So that's not good. <laughs> that's not a positive development. Um, I will, I'll be talking about that quite a bit. I'll give you the potential scenarios that we have that are, you know, that are on the table moving forward. So everybody needs to prep themselves because it could get ugly. Um, I'll lead with that story, and then I have quite a bit on, um, well, I got the MSNBC Wall Street story or Park Avenue story that I want to talk to you about. We have um, Trump and his administration going after Iran ferociously. Trump um, basically supporting the illegal attacking of journalists. I got some Joe Rogan in the show today. I got some Dave Rubin in the show today. That should be funny. I'll be ready to make fun of him. Alex Jones later on. It's actually a really, it's a really nice show. It's, it's jam-packed, despite the fact that a Supreme Court justice died. I, I guess you can't say it's a nice show, <laughs> even though I just did. But let's, uh, without further ado, let's get started, and um, we'll dive into the Ruth Bader Ginsburg stuff. <clears throat> So Ruth Bader Ginsburg died of complications from cancer. She was 87 years old. She had been fighting cancer since, I believe, the 1990s. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was pancreatic. And the numbers on pancreatic cancer are out of this world. Like, if you get it, it's basically a death sentence. And she somehow survived from, like, the late 90s all the way until 2020, um, having had it. So it's a minor miracle she made it this far. She's honestly got to be in like the top 1% of survival rate for people that have pancreatic cancer. Um, so there are colossal political ramifications as a result of her death. I'm sure all of you know this. Um, what are the potential scenarios? We have a Republican president. We have a Republican Senate we have a Democratic House, but we also have an election coming up in like 40 days or so. Um, so that is really, really close to the election. Now, needless to say, um, when it came to Merrick Garland, that was Obama's final pick to the Supreme Court to replace Antonin Scalia, who passed away. Republicans blocked even a hearing on Merrick Garland for nine months, nine months, we're only talking about like 40 days until the election now, um, this time. So what's going to happen? Well, uh, Vice News actually put together this, this really good piece, which lays out for you the, the various scenarios that could happen moving forward. Let's take a look and then we'll discuss. First step, President Trump gets to nominate a new justice. 
But you're saying, hang on, didn't Barack Obama nominate a Supreme Court justice 10 months before the 2016 election? Wasn't his name Merrick Garland? And didn't Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell refuse to give Garland even a hearing, all because he said it was too close to the presidential election and that people should decide? Yes, yes, and yes. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And here's something else very important to remember. Whatever they say, Mitch McConnell and Senator Lindsey Graham do not care that you think they're hypocrites. McConnell's made filling the federal courts with conservative judges his life's work with President Trump. They set records. Remember, a lot of conservatives never liked this transactional, crude, unconservative president. This is the thing that keeps them all together. This is the GOP glue right now. This is the thing that brings the evangelicals to the yard. So be mad all you want. McConnell is going to try to do this. And all eyes right now are on Amy Coney Barrett, an appeals court judge that Trump appointed to the Seventh Circuit based in Chicago. She's very conservative. She's only 48. And Trump's base love her. But will McConnell be able to deliver? It may seem like he's the Senate dictator, but really he isn't. He has just a 53 to 47 majority, so he can only afford to lose three Republican senators as he attempts one of the biggest power plays in modern political history. And they're not all down with this. Here's what could happen. If Trump nominates a new justice in the next few days, option one, McConnell rushes a confirmation before November 3rd. It has some advantages. President Trump's base would love it. It would, believe it or not, distract from the fact that 200,000 Americans are dead from COVID-19, and most Americans hold Trump responsible. Don't forget, there's an election coming up for 21 Republican senators, too, and some could use the help. Martha McSally, down by seven points in Arizona. Joni Ernst is in a dead heat in Iowa, and a fired-up conservative base could help them. But for Republicans in blue states, there's a big downside. What about Susan Collins in Maine? She's way behind, largely because she voted to confirm Justice Brett Kavanaugh. If her race becomes a referendum on a right-wing justice, she's done. And Cory Gardner, falling way behind in blue Colorado. Does he want any part of this right now? So if McConnell could get the justice but lose the Senate. Worth it? Option two. McConnell waits until after the election while Trump is still in power and schedules the confirmation for the period between the election and New Year's called the lame duck. Election pressure's off. Much easier for his members to take hard votes. Though at least one GOP senator said she wouldn't vote to seat a new justice in 2020. And if Arizona Republican Martha McSally loses her special election, she's out right away. And McConnell's three-senator cushion becomes two. This might explain why on Friday night McConnell told Republican senators, don't say anything and vote Keep your powder dry. McConnell also has to think about someone, well, someones we haven't mentioned yet. The Democrats. Oh, yeah, them. Say Dems win the election. They're going to take control of the Senate in January. Democrats are already talking about how to make sure that McConnell's hypocrisy comes with consequences. They can say, do this now, and we'll eliminate the filibuster, cut Republicans out of everything in 2020. We'll vote to expand the Supreme Court to 11 seats or 13 seats, and then fill them with our nominees. So what if McConnell gets the justice, but loses the power to do anything in the Senate? And what about the presidential election itself? When Trump nominates a new justice, something surprising could happen. Instead of COVID-19, or the economy, or Trump's incompetence, this election could become all about, say, abortion rights. The right wants a court that's bent on restricting access to abortion, but the majority of Americans don't. The chance to overturn Roe v. Wade could galvanize a lot of Republican voters, so it would also drive a lot of Democrats and independents and women to the polls, or to their mailboxes, as the case may be. And on the topic of a functioning democracy, Ginsburg's death raises questions about how a court with a vacancy would rule to say it's called on to decide vote-by-mail cases in swing states. What this comes down to is calculation, risk, the election, and control of all three branches of the government in a polarized and pandemic-rattled America. Who wins the Senate and the presidency with the people's votes has everything to do with how this goes. And remember, it's not about fairness. It's about power.
That was actually a great breakdown. So let's run through it here. He says that uh, the hypocrisy thing takes a back seat to ideological goals and power. And that's the truth, man. You know, there's this, there's this instinct from liberals to just highlight what Mitch McConnell said previously or highlight what Lindsey Graham said previously. And there is some value in that. You can, you can expose that, you know, their views on procedural stuff are always just convenient for whatever serves their interests. But anything beyond that, like, it's not as sick of a burn as you think, because what they do is they value higher their ideological goals, and they value higher exercising power. The procedural stuff takes a backseat to it. And what you see from Democrats is quite the opposite. They, you know, they actually abide by a lot of the procedural stuff that Republicans would abandon willy-nilly for, you know, an ideological goal. And it reminds me of this tweet that went viral. Somebody said something along the lines of like, Democrats and Republicans are playing a board game. Republicans say, screw this, and light the house on fire. And as the house is burning down, Democrats are still sitting there plotting their next move in the board game. And that really is an apt analogy. (laughs) That, That is exactly right. Democrats are trying to color within the lines and abide by, you know, the limitations of the institutions and follow the, the procedures and precedent, but Republicans are like, that, I don't care about any of that stuff, even though I said, like Chuck Rathley last year was like, no, I don't think, you know, in the final year we should approve a Supreme Court justice. Lindsey Graham, 2018, same thing, you just saw the clip. Um, there are others, and now they're just like, oh, no, no, yeah, but, yeah, but, see, what happened was the sun was in my eyes, and then this thing happened, and then that thing happened, and then uh, what happened was, Last time when the the makeup of the Senate was different, and now we have a situation where Republicans have the Senate and the presidency, and that's why it's different. Therefore, if we approve a a justice within the last 40 days before an election, it's totally acceptable, and it's not not hypocrisy from, you know, what what they did with Merrick Garland. So they'll find ways to these nonsense rationalizations to wiggle out of it, because ultimately, at the end of the day, they don't care, because to them, the bigger goal is – flexing. It's the power. It's, you know, the ideological end game of getting as many conservatives on that court as possible. And here's the scary thing, guys. This is the thing that should really, you know, give you a moment of pause. Even if we get, let's say we get a genuine left-wing president. I'm not talking about Biden. I'm talking about like an actual social democracy loving lefty an FDR-style president. And you also have a supermajority of Democrats in the Senate and, let's say, a a supermajority in the House. If we have an overwhelmingly conservative court, then they could just strike down anything that a left-wing government does. So let's say we do a Green New Deal. They could say, oh, the way that you crafted this is unconstitutional, therefore we have to throw the whole thing out. This is what a conservative court could do. Let's say we get Medicare for all. A conservative Supreme Court could say, oh, this violates, you know, some principles laid out in the founding of our country in the Constitution, and we're going to strike this down. So, you know, they have the power of judicial review, and 
they could determine what's constitutional and what's not constitutional. And if you have highly ideological right-wingers, doctrinaire right-wingers on the court, they could basically take anything that a left-wing government does and say, wrong, this is unconstitutional, we're not going to allow it to go forward. And to some extent, this already happened with Obamacare, where aspects of it were slapped down. The whole thing wasn't, thank God, but aspects of it were slapped down. And, you know, there was, there was nothing we could do. There's nothing we could do about that. You could try to amend the Constitution, but that's almost mission impossible. Um, or, or you could, in the long run, try to change the makeup of the court. That's, you know, the more practical goal. I know there are some on the left who, just, who want to undermine Marbury versus Madison and the whole co- notion of judicial review. But uh, honestly, I think that's mission impossible as well. And you're in la-la land, and that ship has sailed. We have judicial review. It's not going anywhere. So it's just a matter of you have to play the game now and play it better than the Republicans, and you have to get more left-leaning people on the court. So, I I mean, that's the only takeaway that is reasonable, I think. But then that gets into the conversation about, okay, well, if if they appoint this justice, if they fill this seat, well, then, yeah, you have to have a conversation about packing the court. FDR did it. Like, you have to have the conversation about, okay, are we really going to be these procedural humpers and have that as the cornerstone of our ideology of our institutions get set? Or or are we going to say, no, actually the policy goals are what matters the most and getting positive change is what matters the most. And by any means necessary that are nonviolent, we're going to do that. I think that's what true believers would do. I think that if you really believed... In, in a philosophy or ideology or a viewpoint, yeah, you're going to do whatever you can to get that implemented, you know, without being violent. And so if Republicans have abandoned any semblance of procedure, process, our institutions, the rules, then it's asymmetrical warfare. If they abandon it and then you're sitting there, you know, not playing the same game. I would love it if the Republicans didn't play that game. And we could all abide by because I do think institutions are important and procedures are important. But if, if they've totally abandoned it and they're playing the game of by any means necessary, what do you want it to do? So um, now the scenarios are interesting. He says McConnell can only lose three Republican senators in this fight. And he's already lost two. There are already two who are legit. In, uh, in saying, mm, I'm not going to fill that seat before the election. So that's really important. He can only afford to lose one more. And all eyes are probably on like Mitt Romney because he's one that could be movable. But I don't know about that, man, because what have I told you guys on this show for the longest time? What they don't like about Trump is the mean tweets and how he doesn't know how to play the game and he has no decorum and civility. That's what they don't like about him. His judge choices... They love the guy for his judge choices. Are you kidding me? They agree completely with everybody who Trump would pick to be on the court, for sure. There's no stronger point of agreement than this when it comes to standard right-wingers, standard Republicans, and Trump. Um, So he says they could rush the confirmation before November 3rd, but what that guarantees is you're hurting Republicans in blue states. So in other words... You could get the justice, but you're going to lose the Senate. Is it worth it? That's the question. Or you could push it through in the lame duck. And in that case, you could get the justice, but you lose the power to do anything else. 
and, you know, they float that Democrats might do something like, okay, there's going to be consequences, we'll eliminate the filibuster, and we'll pack the court. Now, will Democrats actually play, play that kind of hardball? I tend to doubt it. But, I mean, this really is sort of like an existential battle, because if the Democrats, if, if the Republicans fill that seat, man, everything just got so much more bleak. Everything was already bleak, but it just got so much more bleak in the long run, because then on issues of health care, on issues of immigration, even on issues of, of abortion, you know, with a, a, an ardently conservative court, they're going to do a lot of damage. Unions, unions, like there's a bunch of cases going before the Supreme Court on all these vital issues, and we could be entering a devastating era if they fill the seat. You know, one of the things I've talked about on this show previously uh, was this era of the Supreme Court called the Lochner era. And, man, it was a terrifying time because what happened was the Supreme Court effectively ruled that employer and employee had what's called a right to contract. And that means the government cannot step in as an independent third party and try to regulate a private contract. So in other words, the government can't say, hey, we have environmental regulations that you have to abide by. Or, hey, child labor is a bad thing. Or, hey, you should pay a minimum wage to make sure people aren't working full time and living in poverty. There was an era where the Supreme Court said it's illegal for the government to do basic regulation. And if an employer and employee agree to something, piss off. So now, why is that crazy? It's crazy because the employer has all the leverage over the employee, and they can basically force them to do things that they don't want to do. And so they could force them to work overtime and not make more pay, all these terrible things. And the Supreme Court ruled that there was a right to contract for private businesses. And that opened up this extreme you know, free market fundamentalism era in the U.S., which was devastating. And it, that was in place for a generation, and we had to overturn it eventually. And, and, you know, we did have an era that was more left-leaning on the court, which revisited a lot of this stuff. And, but I don't want to enter that kind of a world again, man. I don't want to have a court that is like 1 million percent of the time biased in favor of the business owners and the corporations and the billionaires, and they screw workers, and they screw unions, and they mess up health care. And even on social issues, they're going to be primitive and, you know, flip on stuff like, like abortion. I mean, it would just be a total, total nightmare. Um, so what's going to happen? Guys, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Because it, we are really, really close to the election. And I'm not saying that as in, like, you know, as like a strategic point of, oh, we're so close to the election, so you better fight. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, objectively, we are so close to the election that they literally just might not have enough time to get this thing done. Because I think the average it takes is like 70 days to get something like this done between the pick and the hearing and the confirmation. It takes like 70 days, and we only have like 40 days until the election. So it might be close enough to the election where even if they wanted to, it would be very difficult. Um, but I don't know. I really, really don't know. And the, the only thing, the only prediction I'm somewhat confident in making is that this does help the Democrats electorally. It does. Um, because, I mean, this is a, a huge loss. And it's everybody on the left that kind of acknowledges that. 
whether it's your run-of-the-mill, hashtag-resistance, normie Democrat, or it's your, you know, firebrand lefty. Like, every, they all across the board, we all realize, oh, okay, this is really, really serious. And so we've already been beaten down sufficiently. But then when you take another step back in a situation like that, it does tend to fire everybody up. And I'll get to a story in a little bit. Democratic fundraising numbers are monstrous after what happened here. So I do think it helps the Democrats. And beyond that, yeah, a lot of the issues that are going to be highlighted in regards to the Supreme Court, um, they're issues where the Democrats have such an overwhelming advantage when you look at the polls that if people feel like reproductive rights are under threat, again, that's going to fire people up. So I do think that this helps the Democrats electorally, but I don't know how the fight is going to unfold, what's going to end up happening, what the Democrats will do in response if they try to jam it through. Um, There's just too many question marks, but it does add to the chaos of the moment, and there is quite a bit of chaos. And honestly, that's the last thing we needed. I I think the election is going to be a mess. The red mirage might happen where it looks like Trump wins on election night. This is what the data analysts say. It looks like Trump wins on election night because Republicans are more likely to vote in person on election day. But then when all the mail-in votes are counted after a week, it could be that Biden wins comfortably. And that's a a scenario that will lead to such utter chaos because 40 or 50 percent of the country will literally just be like, I think the election was stolen. So what do you do in a situation like that? Now add in another thing which sets us back. And it does sort of feel like the fabric of the country is slowly coming apart. Um, But we have to wait and see what happens. You know, and just hope that they can't get a justice through um, and the Democrats learn to fight in a way that works and sort of abandon this how dare you, sir, procedural humping and just take the position of like, we're all about our policy goals. But the problem is they're usually not like that because they don't really have the same policy goals as you and me. They are comfortable corporatists. So who knows? The saving grace is usually on issues like this, like the Supreme Court or on like social issues. The Democrats do tend to be a little more aggressive on that stuff because, you know, corporate power isn't, isn't as crucial a part of this. You know what I mean? Like on, on Wall Street issues, on war issues, yeah, Democrats and Republicans oftentimes agree they agree way too much because they're both bought by the same people. But yeah, when it comes to something like the Supreme Court or when it comes to some social issues like abortion, you do see Democrats are, are at least more strident in believing what they believe and pushing what they push on those issues. So I don't know. I don't know how this will unfold, but everything's a mess. And no matter what happens, I don't think it'll be pretty. Okay, next. A majority of Americans, including many Republicans, are saying that we should wait for the election to replace Ginsburg. Hold on, wait a second. I don't have the right story up. Okay. Let me start that over for you.
All right, I want to give you guys um, some more information on what's happening around the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, the fallout from that, how the country's feeling, what's going on. A majority of Americans, including many Republicans, say, wait for election to replace Ginsburg. This is a Reuters poll. So 62% of the country says the winner of the election should fill the seat. 62%. Um, Only 23% disagree, and the rest are not sure. So this is, uh, I got to be honest, I'm a little surprised by this. I thought it would be straight down partisan lines, but it's not. It's not. It's a big victory for the wait for the election crowd. And I'm only speculating here, but I, I honestly think the reason is we are so, so close to the election that even if they rushed everything, I still don't know if they could get it in under the gun. Because we have like 40 days until the election, and the average time that it takes to fill a seat on the Supreme Court is about 70 days, almost double that time frame. So, you know, I'm guessing that this is what the American people feel, is that it is really, really close to the election. So maybe just hold off on that a little bit. Um, Now, here's what else happened. This is quite a story. The most prolific online fundraising platform for Democratic candidates and causes, that's ActBlue, said today that donors had contributed more than $91 million in the 28 hours after the Supreme Court announced Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died. Guys, $91 million in 28 hours? That's an all-time record, by the way, for ActBlue. All-time record. So... What does this tell us? I think it does hint that no matter what happens with the seat, this is going to be a bump for Democrats in terms of the election, for sure. Biden and all the down-ballot Democrats, for sure. Because, I don't know, there's this weird psychological thing that happens where we've already been beaten down the left has already been beaten down. And then we take another giant step back with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and it lights a fire under you and it makes you go like, whoa, whoa, whoa. no, 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 no. Fuck that. Fuck that. We're, we're not letting this happen. We're not letting this happen. And so it does reinvigorate people. And I do think it's across the board. I, I think it's like your normie hashtag resistance Democrat. And I think it's your firebrand lefties who are like, no, we can't, we can't let this happen. We can't let the Republicans get another seat. They could block any and all progress, even under a Democratic president, Democratic Senate, and Democratic House, because the Supreme Court could just rule everything that, that they do unconstitutional. So um, I think that uh, this is a good sign for the Democrats electorally, but I don't know. I really have no idea if they'll be able to jam through a new justice. They might, and that would be bad. It would definitely be a a big help for the Democrats, though, electorally, whether they do it or not. Just the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg alone is is something that is really reigniting a passion um, on the left. So are the Republicans going to, you know, take this into consideration that 62 percent of the country say wait until the election? No, of course not. (laughs) They never do. They, They don't care about public opinion. I mean, Democrats usually don't either. Um, but this actually reminds me, remember when there was a, a bill about taking away your internet privacy rights and 
it was a bill that had the lowest approval rating I've ever seen. I think it was like 13% or something like that. And it basically allows websites to take your information without your permission and sell it to a third party. Um, and so third parties like companies can then advertise to you based on your information that they got from other websites that you voluntarily put your information in. Again, nobody is in favor of this. The Republicans passed it and Trump signed it. It had like a 13% approval rate. So you think they care that like 62% of the country is like, hey, wait until the election, until after the election to fill it. They don't care at all. But I don't know how this is going to unfold. But again, it just adds to the chaos of everything happening in the country right now. Okay. Now we're going to make fun of MSNBC because this is quite a moment. There's some people on the right who've argued for quite a while that, you know, MSNBC is the left-wing biased network. I've always taken issue with that because the reality is they're not ideologically left-wing. Of course not. They're cheerleaders for the Democratic Party, for the Democratic establishment. There's a big difference between those things because the Democratic establishment is not left-wing. The Democratic establishment are neoliberal corporatists. So... Just like Fox News is the Republican cheerleading network, MSNBC is the Democratic Party cheerleading network. And when you take out the most partisan outlets, Fox News and MSNBC, you know, the nightly news, CBS, ABC, NBC, um, and CNN you could throw in, they're just, they have a more, their bias is just pro-establishment maybe slightly leaning in the Democratic Party direction, but it's still just pro-establishment. So they do propaganda for the establishment of both parties. Um, What you're going to see here is a great example of how MSNBC is clearly not left-wing. There are no left-wing voices in mainstream media. You have to go to new media, to independent media, to get anything even close to to left-wing ideological thought. So here's MSNBC host Stephanie Rule showing her true colors, or shall I say her true class. She's going to critique a mild leftist strategy from Joe Biden and his team. Michael, Joe Biden said yesterday that his campaign is Scranton versus Park Avenue. Why is he going with this divide-and-conquer approach? That's Trump's thing. What about a message for all Americans? I don't live on Park Avenue, but I live pretty close to it. And you know how I got there? Working my butt off. He doesn't want my vote? Beyond parody. Beyond parody. Rich lives matter. Park Avenue lives matter. Is she unaware that the entire government exists to support the wealthy? We live in what is functionally an oligarchy and a kleptocracy. And so the government, all the government does is represent billionaires and Wall Street and the wealthy and the military-industrial complex. 
corporations, for-profit health insurance companies. The tweet from Biden, Biden's not even going to do anything remotely left-wing. But the tweet was like, oh, it's Scranton versus Park Avenue. So he's trying to say, like, I'm the, I'm the average Joe, and, and Trump is the representative of the wealthy. Like, that's the tweet. And this is what she's taking issue with. This is what, of all the things to go after Joe Biden for, the Iraq War killed hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians, the Patriot Act spying on all Americans, the outsourcing deals destroyed the industrial Midwest, none of that. That she's totally fine with. What she doesn't like is mildly leftist rhetoric, which actually fundamentally is nothing but a platitude that represents nothing of what he'll actually do. This shows you what the media is. Ultimately, this is Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent. That's what this is. You have the media exists to do propaganda for the establishment. Sometimes it's different wings of the establishment. It could be the Republican Party or it could be the Democratic Party. But the connecting tissue is defend the status quo. Defend the powers that be. And so you have a media which represents elite interests. This is, this is rhetoric that comes right out of the mouth of an elitist. She's married to a hedge fund manager. Did you know that? Let me explain this. It's very simple. The reason why this leftist rhetoric is actually good and it works is because people fundamentally understand that the interests of the wealthy are not aligned with their interests. In fact, they're diametrically opposed. So, for example, if you're representing billionaires and corporations, one of the things they don't want is to raise the minimum wage because that cuts into their profit and their bottom line. Now, the overwhelming majority of the actual American people support raising the minimum wage. So you have to make a decision there. Am I going to represent the interests of the billionaires and the corporations, or am I going to represent the interests of the people? She makes it seem like, why can't we all come together? This is divisive rhetoric. You have to pick a side on that. You have to pick a side. The overwhelming majority of the American people say, raise taxes on the wealthy and corporations. The wealthy and corporations say, don't raise my taxes. You have to pick a side. You can't say, whoa, well, gosh, golly, we ought to come together and hold hands and sing kumbaya. That makes no sense. They are fundamentally opposed. The class interests are opposed. She's trying to act like that's not the case so we can just continue the status quo, which is perpetually screwing workers. By the way, this clip comes out the same week that a report showed that the top 1% has effectively taken $50 trillion dollars from the bottom 90%. Let me repeat that. The top 1% has effectively taken $50 trillion from the bottom 90%. If you kept the level of wealth and, in, wealth and income inequality that we had decades ago, and you just kept it at that ratio and move forward from there, workers would be $50 trillion wealthier. But the system was rigged. It was rigged by corporations. It was rigged by the wealthy. It was rigged in terms of tax policy. It was rigged in terms of trade policy. You see the problem? It's also rigged in terms of who gets bailed out and who doesn't. For the first time in U.S. history, this started in 2018, for the first time in U.S. history, billionaires paid, a 23, paid 23% of their income in federal, state, and local taxes. 
the average American paid 28%. So a working class person paid more in taxes than a billionaire. That only comes about as a result of corruption. And instead of addressing this and fixing the problem and giving people equal opportunity and giving people a fair wage, what does MSNBC do? They critique Biden for mildly leftist, by the way, this strategy would win him the election, just to be clear, if he leans into stuff like this, even though he doesn't mean it, but if he leans into stuff like this, this would definitely win him the election. MSNBC is trying to do everything they can to make sure that the class interests come first. The wealthy and corporations are taken care of. They really just tried to pull some, pull some hashtag rich lives matter stuff here. That's what this is. As if there's some sort of a, you know, some sort of an oppressed minority. The wealthy run everything. The corporations run everything. They've been rigging the system and waging class war on working people for decades. MSNBC doesn't care. Stephanie Rule doesn't care. In fact, she's clearly on one side of that divide. I mean, I don't know how else to say this. This is pathetic. This is pathetic. Who is this representing? Answer, the top 1%, the corporations and the wealthy. If you're, if you're somebody who's a working person and you watch MSNBC and you think they're representing you, remember this clip. They're not telling you the truth. They're not fighting for you. This is what they do. Mask off moment, that's for sure. All right. Next, 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 next. The United States appears to be looking to overthrow the Iranian government before the next president takes office. So they've started to rush things. This is from CNBC. They say the Trump administration to impose sweeping sanctions tied to Iran's weapons program. As early as Monday, the United States could sanction more than two dozen people and entities involved in Iran's nuclear, ballistic, missile, and conventional arms program, a senior U.S. official told Reuters. On Saturday, the United States unilaterally reimposed U.N. sanctions on Tehran through a snapback process, a process that, the, that other U.N. Security Council members have previously said Washington does not have the authority to execute. So, this is really interesting because now the Trump administration is actually feuding with the international community. And they're telling the international community, not only are we putting these sanctions back on Iran, but if other countries do business with Iran, we'll sanction them as well. We'll sanction you as well. So this is the United States, in no uncertain terms, acting as a rogue nation on the international stage. And we are alienating and isolating every country around the world to the point where they almost certainly don't want to work with us 
when it comes to other issues because we're being such a pain in the ass on, on this issue. So let's remember the history of it. We had the Iran nuclear agreement. It was honestly, if not the best thing Obama did, one of the best things Obama did. Because the way the deal works is we give them back their own money that we had stolen, we had frozen over the years. We give them back their own money, and then they agree to not develop nuclear weapons and, in fact, have the UN's International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, go in there on a regular basis and, and see what's happening and then report back to the international community. And they have to meet, uh, you know, certain checkpoints um, so that we can, you know, continue to give them back their own money and, and de-escalate and remove tensions. And, you know, we, we open up their economy slowly but surely to the rest of the world as they've been isolated and struggling. We open up their economy, we give them back their own money, and in return for that, we just make sure that they're not developing any nuclear weapons. That was the deal. It was working beautifully. It was verified by the IAEA repeatedly. They were following the deal to a T. We decided, this administration decided, we disagree. Trump has this crazy idea that like, you know, where American taxpayers are paying Iran. Totally made up, utter nonsense. The money that they've gotten is us giving them back their own money that we have stolen. But Trump has this nonsense because he listens to right-wing media all day and they lie about this stuff relentlessly. So he thought American taxpayers are giving Iran money. And he said, we're, you know, we're going to pull out of the deal. They ripped, we ripped up the deal. Then we had the nerve, even after we ripped up the deal, and they went back to start um, you know, creating weapons again, we turned around and chastised them. What are you talking about? They were fought. When we had the deal, they were following it. Then we pulled out of the deal, and you can't turn around and tell them to follow the terms of the deal after we pulled out of it. The hubris, the arrogance, the stupidity. But guys, ultimately, there's a reason why they do all this, because they want to do regime change. So they'll use any argument they want, any argument they could come up with against Iran. So now we're saying all the sanctions are going to be put back on. We're going to crush them. And now... If other countries want to do business with them, we'll crush you too. And the UN's like, hey, you guys can't do this. And we're like, stop us. So this is where we're at. Now, also remember, Trump killed General Soleimani, who's a, a, a top general in Iran. Now, usually, you, don't, you can't do something like that without some sort of retaliation. Of course, we're arrogant, and we thought, like, no, no, no it'll be totally cool, and, and we'll get away with it. Well, you know, there, I'm sure it's led to issues in, in Shia regions of Iraq. You know, it led to some retaliatory strikes at the time. There was a report that just came out talking about how, you know, Iran was looking to maybe kidnap or kill a U.S. ambassador to, like, South Africa or something. Now, do I believe the details of that? No, I don't, because and this gets to the other point, they're now ramping the propaganda up because they really want to try to do regime change before the next administration comes in. So look at this tweet. This is from an Israeli public broadcaster. Breaking. U.S. believes Iran may have enough fissile material, fissile, fissile, however you say it, material for a nuclear bomb by the end of the year, U.S. official says, 
U.S. official says. So we're literally just going to do the exact same playbook that we used in Iraq. That's what this tells me. That's what this tells me. You can, you can go back and see, and, and uh, Jordan Yule tweeted this. You can go back to 2009, and their people are saying, and U.S. officials are saying, Iran's going to have a nuclear weapon any day now. Oh, my God. They did it in 2009. Remember when Netanyahu spoke to the U.N. with, with his little wily coyote drawing of a bomb? And he was like, see, they're almost done. 90% completed. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Anything now? Oh, my God. They've been doing this nonstop for over a decade. Oh, my God. Anything now? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And, guys, again, if you just take out Iraq and put – or take out Iran and put Iraq in this tweet, this is the Saddam Hussein playbook all over again. And think about the fact there's a global pandemic happening. Domestically, our economy is a mess. And this is what U.S. officials, the deep state, is working on. And Trump is more than happy to go along with them because he's gone along with them a million times before. This is what they're focused on. They want to do regime change in Iran. Hell no. Hell no, hell no, hell no. We can't let it happen. The military-industrial complex already does whatever the hell they want to do. We're still in Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan. Obama pretended like we were going to get out. We didn't. Trump pretended like we are going to get out. We didn't. Now we're in Syria as well. We'll get to a story on that later, sending even more troops to Syria. Still doing the drone war, you know. And now you want to add Iran to the list? You want to overthrow Iran? By the way, even if they were to get a nuke, and try to get a nuke. I got news for you. You want to know why they want it? A deterrent to U.S. aggression. That's why. People don't like talking about the history of this, but they should, because you need to learn it to know the way the world works. But with Libya, we got Gaddafi to give up his nukes, to give up his weapons, I should say, after Saddam Hussein. He was like, oh, my God, I don't want them to topple me. Oh, yes, Americans, I would love to play ball with you. You guys are my favorite. Here, take these weapons. So he handed over his weapons to the U.S. after he saw what we did to Saddam Hussein. Then we overthrew him anyway. So to the extent Iran wants a nuclear weapon or is trying to get a nuclear weapon, it's not because they cannot wait to press launch and blow up Sacramento or Des Moines. It's that they want to be able to say, now you can't mess with us because look what we got. So stay out of here, Americans. That's why they want it. That's why they want it. No matter how much dumb fear-mongering people might do about, oh my God, Muslim extremists with, with a nuclear weapon, unacceptable, they'll kill us all now. Well, that also fundamentally misunderstands the nature of the different ideological strains of Islam, where, you know, these are... These are Shia Muslims in Iran. These are not Wahhabi or Salafist jihadists. These are not people who are, are waging jihad uh, at, at the moment. This is not what they do. So you also fundamentally misunderstand the nature of what's going on here. But beyond that, to the extent there is any regime worldwide which is sympathetic to the extreme version of Islam, that would be Saudi Arabia, who we happily arm on a regular basis to the tune of billions of dollars and we aid them do a genocide in, doing a genocide in Yemen as well. I can't believe we're watching the same thing unfold. It really is like we live in the twilight zone. I hate it. 
And the media, instead of doing what I'm doing right now, poking holes in the narrative, explaining why this makes no sense, explaining why we're at fault, if anything, instead of doing that, what will the media do? The propaganda for the government. The propaganda for regime change, because this is what they always do. Every single war, the mainstream media has done the bidding of the deep state, the Pentagon, the military-industrial complex, the status quo, and the powers that be. They try to manufacture consent. That's what they do. And you have to leave it to loudmouth idiots on YouTube like me to try to poke holes in their narrative. And that's pathetic, man. That's pathetic. I mean, how many times have we discussed, whether it's in U.S. schools in the education system or whether it's in mainstream media outlets, how often have they discussed the fact that we overthrew a democratically elected government in Iran? We overthrew Mohammed Mossadegh put into power the Shah, and then it was a direct result of of the Shah abusing his power um, that led to the Islamic Revolution in the 1970s. It was like 1979, if I remember correctly. They'll never tell you that history. I mean, it's important to know that history, to know who's the aggressor on the international stage, but they'll never tell you that history, ever. Because the baked-in assumption, to work in these mainstream media outlets, you have to have the default assumption that we are always the good guy. And even when we do messed up stuff, it's just a mistake because we have good intentions. Childish. Absolutely childish. And now you see they're running the same playbook that they used with Saddam Hussein. Wake up, everybody. We can't let this stuff continue. Okay. All right, let's uh, let's do the Trump story with Ali Velshi. Trump uh, was jovial, recounting a story of a journalist being attacked by law enforcement. So I'm going to play this for you in a second. This is Ali Velshi. He's actually one of the f- very few voices, in my opinion, on MSNBC who's not bad. And honestly, the main reason for that is. I think he's Canadian, and therefore he knows about healthcare policy a lot more than your average American, and he's one of the few people to actually kind of fearlessly argue for Medicare for All on a corporate media outlet. So I give him a lot of credit for that. He never backs down on that issue. I, I'm sure I have other disagreements with him, um, but on that alone, he's head and shoulders above and beyond almost any other person uh, in mainstream media. So I have, I have a soft spot um, for, for Ali Velshi for that exact reason. But he was at, you know, when there was a lot of rioting and looting happening, um, he was at an event, let's say, because there was a, a report that came out. I think the number was 93% of protests around the country were totally peaceful. And then, you know, that would be 7% that were violent. Uh, According to Ali, he was at one of these protests that was a totally peaceful protest, and he was doing his job. And then um, police, I believe, fired a rubber bullet at him or at his leg or something like that. And, um, you know, it was in that moment that everybody realized, like, whoa, what is going on here? They've even gone as far as to arrest journalists who were clearly journalists. This is what some police departments have done around the country. And so, in other words, they're not abiding by freedom of the press, the First Amendment. And um, 
for a president who loves to pretend to care about this issue, he sure does have a strange take on this, on, on this doesn't he? opposite of law and order, Donald. That's what that is. Law enforcement using unnecessary force against a journalist, not only would that be illegal, that would also be unconstitutional because it violates the First Amendment, the thing you pretend to care about quite a bit. See, this clip, I think, demonstrates perfectly one of the main reasons why Trump is really struggling in this election so far is that He's tried to portray himself as like, I'm the candidate of law and order. I'm going to make sure we bring peace back to this country and peace in the streets. But in the process of making that argument, he endlessly contradicts himself because he's not really trying to bring people together and bring about peace. What he's doing is he's picking a side in disputes and then pouring fuel on the fire. That's exactly what this is. This is just like when he's threatened to invoke the Insurrection Act and deploy the U.S. military on our streets. And then he gassed peaceful protesters to do a photo op with a Bible in front of a church. That's when his numbers plummeted. They plummeted when that happened. Why? Because everybody in the country who's not like hardcore MAGA already was like, oh my God, you're creating chaos. You're creating anarchy. You're creating an unstable situation. What would any normal president do in situations like this? You go out there and you do the the rhetoric about we need to bring everybody together. At the end of the day, we're all Americans. We're all in this together. You know, law enforcement needs to abide by our highest ideals and principles. They cannot willy-nilly attack the media. Instead, he does the opposite. By the way, was Ali Belshi acting violent? Was he doing anything wrong? Not by any stretch of the imagination. Not even close. This guy wouldn't harm a fly. And he got attacked by law enforcement, and Trump is siding with law enforcement. It's, and this is why there was a poll that came out recently asking Americans about law and order issues, and Biden was crushing Trump on the issue of law and order. Because everybody knows, yeah, Trump is the guy who's going to give us more chaos nonstop. And when you cheerlead... People in the media getting attacked offensively by cops. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. The people are right. The other thing this does is this does kind of incentivize and give a green light for law enforcement to do stuff like this. I mean, there's a famous clip. I think before Trump was elected at a rally, he would he talked about how, like, you know, back in the good old days, back in the good old days, you don't have to be kind with these people. Be a little rough with them. Be a little rough with them. You want to rough him up a little bit as you throw him into the back of the police cruiser? Go right ahead. This is the kind of guy he is. He thinks if you have a badge and a gun, you're a good guy by definition. 
So it doesn't matter. If you break the law, you are the law. What does it sound like? It sounds like Alonzo from Training Day, for those of you who've seen that. Great movie, by the way. You should check it out if you haven't seen it. I'm a big fan of Denzel Washington across the board, but the Alonzo character in Training Day was amazing. That's, that's what Trump believes. That's what Trump thinks makes sense. That's what he views law and order as. So if you're an officer, you could break the law all you want, but it doesn't count because you're one of the good guys. And this is, by the way, the mindset of every American exceptionalist. When we do it, when we violate international law, invade countries, topple governments, that doesn't count as bad. It's either good, or even if it doesn't go the way we want it to, since our intentions were pure, therefore, it's okay. This is the mindset. And I need people to break away from that kind of thinking, because you sound like an idiot if that's what you believe. Because what you're saying is, the actions themselves, I'm not going to evaluate from a moral and ethical perspective. But that's, like, murder is wrong because murder is wrong. Killing somebody, killing an innocent person is wrong because it's wrong. It doesn't matter what your rationalization is, who you are, if you think your childhood was, you know, led to this happening or whatever. None of that matters. Murdering innocent people is wrong. But a lot of people really do like to do the mental gymnastics and, and bring themselves to a position where, no, no, it's okay if I do it because since I know I mean well and since I had my reasons and since I'm the one with the badge and I'm the one, you know, I'm doing it for the higher cause. No, no, no. Those are just rationalizations. That's all that is at the end of the day. You have to evaluate actions. If something's wrong and bad for others, it's wrong and bad for you. You have to universalize these things or else what the, there is no moral code. Everything is just totally, you know, arbitrary and subjective and, and subject to the whims of anybody, which is why we always say the U.S. needs to act internationally as any other country, as we would expect of any other country. You know, we, we need to think about an action that we take. What if a government we despise did it? What if Iran did it? What if Iran did it? How would we feel? That's how you evaluate your actions. You got to, you know, put the shoe on the other foot. That's what you got to do. You always have to do these intellectual exercises to try to figure out what really is the moral thing. Am I giving myself extra slack because I'm me? This is what Trump does. If you're a cop, you're one of the good guys. You do what you want. And he hates the media, and he loves the cops. So even when it's a guy who wouldn't hurt a fly and has never done anything wrong, if he got attacked by the cops, he'll say it's a beautiful thing. Why is it beautiful? Because you hate the media and you like the cops. Because you're a thug and you're a criminal. You know, this is the kind of guy who has no... He wouldn't hesitate to commit a number of crimes, Trump, because he's already defined himself as one of the good guys. So it doesn't count when I do it. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it really is childish thinking, and unfortunately, many people subscribe to this. And in typical Trump fashion, so he got his name wrong. He called him Welchy? <laughs> what is that? I have no idea what that is. Sounds like, it sounds like a character in a cartoon or something, right? Welchy. <laughs> what is that? And then also, I don't know if you saw it in this clip, but he, he says, oh, a CNN host. He's an MSNBC host. So he gets that wrong, too. Um, but, yeah, nothing pisses me off more than this whole, like, use law and order as you advocate for the opposite of law and order. That really gets under my skin. And it reminds me of one of the State of the Union addresses. Trump spoke about how he's the president of law and order, and then he went on to explain how he just signed an executive order on torture, which allows 
us to keep torturing. And it's like, you don't see what you just did there. You really don't see that. Law and order, but I love torture. Torture would be violating law and order. Law and order, it's also violating the Constitution, the Eighth Amendment protection from cruel and unusual punishment. He violated that. I'm going to break the ultimate law as I say I'm for law and order. God damn it, this annoys me, man. It really does get under my skin. But anyway, MSNBC released a statement in solidarity with uh, Ali Velshi and was like, can you believe this? I mean, this guy, he hates press freedom. He hates law and order as he does the opposite all the time. He's out there saying law and order and arguing with free speech on college campuses. This is a real violation of freedom of speech right here. This is a real violation of a free press. Attacking journalists incentivizes journalists to not question power and authority as much, right? But that's what Trump wants. By the way, same time, Edward Snowden still overseas, hiding from an oppressive U.S. government. Julian Assange, his administration is going after Julian Assange still. Pardon those two. Then we'll have a conversation about law and order. So, <sighs> tiring, isn't it? I get so tired having to follow this bullshit nonstop. Okay. All right, let me do one more and then we'll take a break. We'll do Dave Rubin here. Dave Rubin uh, is still on quite the character arc. Everybody knows his story. He started out as like a TYT um, host and was a left-leaning guy. And then slowly but surely he had this political transformation where he went from left-leaning guy to, like, classical liberal, as in I view myself as moderate, and then it was, like, classical liberal, and I'm just going to be a conservative. And now it's, like, he's the most standard, doctrinaire, down-the-line, reflexive, reactionary, unthoughtful Republican. That's what he is. So um, now he's taking shots. This is, a, this is a thing with Dave Rubin. It happens all the time. He'll get close with somebody or he'll try to – get close with somebody, and then, like, the tiniest thing that he views as a slight, and he goes nuclear. And really difficult guy, you know, to deal with behind the scenes. I I knew him and was friendly with him for quite a while. It was weird in the aftermath, for sure. Um, But other people have told stories, too. Like, I I believe I heard Chris Reagan tell this story about how, like, um the most mild critique of Rubin imaginable. And then like Rubin would reach out through back channels to like pressure other people about Chris Reagan. He was like, what? Like he tried to reach out to his podcast host buddy or something and like say like, look at what this guy's doing. Like almost like trying to find some way to punish him or whatever. He does this really weird Machiavellian back channel like, high school level petty stuff. Well, now he's going after the big dog. Who's the big dog? Joe Rogan. Big man on campus, number one podcast in the world. Ruben had been on it a few times. He hasn't been on it in quite a while. Um, Let's see what he had to say. Look at it this way. When you see um, all of these people now supposedly moving from California, they can't take it anymore. They're moving from California to Texas. Well, often we know they export from California and then import it into the red states all of these blue ideas and these bad ideas, and then they turn states blue. So, you know, if I was the average 
Texan conservative, I would be pretty worried when, say, Joe Rogan, I, I like Joe, but, you know, when Joe Rogan, who was a Bernie supporter, he's fleeing California to set up shop in Texas, right. and you're excited because it's kind of cool that Joe Rogan lives there, but it's like he's gotten the big ideas wrong, and you have to be worried about that. That's not a shot at Joe Rogan personally, but that, that's just a, a, a reality. I like how he slips in at the end. That's not a shot at Joe Rogan personally. It's just the reality. To this point, he hasn't said anything negative about Joe. Now he is. Why? Because it became clear to him that Joe ain't ever having him back on his podcast. That's donezo, son. That ship has sailed. Now, why isn't Joe having him back on the podcast? Listen, all of this stuff is public. You don't have to take my word for it. You can see the record. You can see it unfold. But there were a few times in podcasts where Joe Rogan would say these things where it was kind of clear he was talking about Dave Rubin. Even though he's too nice of a guy and he wouldn't say it, he argued, man, I like having people on from across the ideological spectrum. Listen, he's friends with me and he's friends with Ben Shapiro. How is that possible when Ben and I disagree on 98% of stuff? Because Joe is a very curious guy, and as long as he feels like somebody's telling the truth, he wants to hear him out. As long as he feels like somebody's not a grifter, he'll hear him out. Well, he's on to Dave Rubin, and it became clear that Joe thinks Dave Rubin is a grifter and an airhead, and so there were a few times in various podcasts where he, he would make this argument, like, as long as I think you're telling the truth, I'll have you on. If I think you're a grifter, that's when i got to cut you off. And it was so clear he was referring to Ruben without actually saying Ruben's name. And this happened a number of times. You know, there was this famous argument back and forth that Ruben and, and Rogan had on their last podcast that they did. And um, it became clear that Ruben really was not playing with a full deck in that conversation. You know, the whole... The debate was on, like, regulations, and Joe was like, listen, man, I work construction. You can't tell me that these guys wouldn't cut corners. They absolutely cut corners, and you need the regulations to make sure that they don't. You can't have a wa- water line close to, you know, um, the electric, and it's just, it, it, it's insane to not have regulation. We need regulation to prevent a lot of damage from being done, and, and Ruben was in a corner, and he's basically like, you know, Joe, I think that, you know, ideologically, it's not that what I'm trying to say is that I really like that idea in theory of deregulation. In theory, intellectually, that's the thing that makes sense to me. And Joe's like, he's got this look on his face, what are you talking about? Then there was this famous moment uh, where they were talking about um, the United States Postal Service, and Ruben says basically how bad of a job they do and that it should be totally privatized. And then he accidentally makes the argument the United States Postal Service is actually awesome because they delivered, like, live animals to him or something like that. But I guess he messed up and thought United States Postal Service was UPS, not USPS. And so he ended up giving credit to the government while making a point that government sucks. And everybody in the Internet was like, oh, my God, you're the dumbest person on the planet. Oh, my God. So anyway, it looks like Joe Rogan really caught on that this guy is not playing with a full deck. <laughs> he's not He's not all there. He's an airhead. He's also just looking for an angle. You know, I think I've told this story um, publicly before, but I'll never forget, the only person in this business, right, the, the political commentary business or whatever you want to call it, 
The only person in this business who I had a conversation with where I really thought, like, that was a weird thing to say, it was with Dave Rubin because Dave Rubin one time said to me, what's your end goal? What's your end game? TV show? And I thought, like, I don't, like, I like doing what I'm doing for the sake of doing it. Like, I'm not trying to get from point A to point B personally. I'm, I'm doing what I want to do and what I like to do. I'm talking about all these important issues, and that's what it's about. It's about following the news, talking about what I find interesting and what I think is very important, and sharing that with all of you, and running my mouth and, and giving my opinion. That's what it's about. But I like it for what it is. I'm not trying to get somewhere like, oh, I'm miserable now, but maybe I'll get to this place where then I can be happy and I've made it. I never thought like that. That's careerist garbage. But Dave Rubin asked the question, expecting me to be like, yeah, oh, the ultimate goal is a TV show, Dave. Yes, what's yours? And that's when I had my first reservation. I was like, oh, okay, so this guy's got... He's always scheming, plotting, trying to get ahead, trying to play the game, trying to get somewhere. It's never about what you're doing right now. Feeling that there's value in what you're doing right now. It's always got to be some sort of official recognition from some of the higher-ups, whether it's a big network or the other people who are more famous than you. This is, again, a big theme with Dave Rubin. Um, So Rogan caught on to the fact that this guy's not a guy that he would get along with or like – And then the next thing that came out was Dave Rubin was talking to his audience doing a QA, and a and he said, hey, listen, we've been reaching out to Rogan nonstop to try to get on to to promote Dave's new book, which, by the way, is terrible. There's a million – there are conservative outlets that did reviews of the book that were like, this is incoherent garbage, and I hate it, and it makes conservatives look bad. Conservative outlets are saying that. So Rubin was trying to get on Rogan to sell his new book, and Rogan clearly wasn't having it. And so Rubin was doing a Q&A with his audience, and he says, hey, I don't know what happened. Tried to get on. We reached out nonstop. I don't know what's going on. And so, yeah, I'll leave it at that. You know what's going on. He sees through you now. And you're butthurt that he sees through you. So anyway, fast forward now, I guess, a few weeks. And now here comes the shots. Here comes the shots from Dave. And I don't think they're going to stop. I think they'll continue. Unless he realizes, hey, I shouldn't go after the number one podcast host in America because he could bury me if he really wanted to, and he could call me out by name, and that would destroy me. Um, So maybe he will back off of that because if there's anything he respects, it's power. Um, But maybe not. Maybe he won't back off because he's clearly butthurt over this. He is. It's clear that he's upset. And so now he's taking the shots at Rogan trying to act like it's not coming from a a place of personal grief, but it is. I mean, because look at, nobody could be this stupid for real, right? Where he says, you know, it's kind of bad that Rogan is bringing these big ideas and these bad ideas to Texas. So the guy whose whole thing is like, who, me, bro? I'm all about freedom of speech. I'm all about free speech. And I hate the snowflakes. And I love freedom unless it's freedom to move wherever you want to move if you're an American. Hmm. It sounds to me, Dave, like you're canceling Joe Rogan for disagreeing with you. That's what it sounds like to me. 
hey, don't move from a liberal state to a conservative state because I, Dave Rubin, disagree with you and don't want you to import bad ideas. So in other words, you're not so big on that whole freedom thing. Here's my take as a lefty. Any American can move anywhere the hell they want to because that's freedom and that's being an American. Now I know Dave is ruthlessly, rigidly, pathetically partisan these days, but that's what normal Americans would agree to. You can go wherever you want. Should we, have, should we have a checklist, Dave? Hey, what are your thoughts on abortion? What are your thoughts on the size of the government? What are your thoughts on taxes? Sorry, you can move in here. You can't move in here. Sounds like the opposite of freedom to me. The funny thing is his whole brand was built on like, well, I care a lot about ideological diversity. And that's what the intellectual dark web is about. If you disagree with somebody, you're still supposed to hear them out. That's the way this works. And then now it's like, Rogan disagrees with me. He shouldn't be able to move where he wants to move. I used cancel. He's canceled for... for not agreeing with me. And then my favorite part is, he got the big ideas wrong. Oh, did he? Please elaborate, son. I'd love to hear this, Dave. Please explain to me what big ideas Joe Rogan has gotten wrong. I'll wait. Because the fact of the matter is, if we get into the specifics, he can't defend any of it. It's like, it's like when Rubin went on David Pakman's show, and David Pakman. Basic questions, the most basic questions of all time on healthcare policy. And Ruben had no idea how to answer it. He was totally lost. He was totally lost. Pacman was like, what's your ideal system? And Ruben talked word salad, right? And then Pacman asked another question. Dave responded, and Pacman goes, wait a second. You bash Obamacare. What you just described was Obamacare. Because previously... He had said, oh, he's for Medicare for all. He's for, you know, universal health care. This is what Ruben had said previously. Then he backed off of that, and he said, well, what we should have is, like, everybody should have coverage, but they should have coverage through the private market. And Pacman's like, dude, that's basically Obamacare. It's an individual mandate system. It's saying, hey, we'll expand Medicaid, but... If you don't have health care, you have to get health care, and you've got to go get it through the private market if you don't hit the income threshold for Medicaid. So he's bashing Obamacare out of one side of his mouth. At the other, out of the other side of his mouth, he's basically saying, Obamacare is my ideal type of health care reform, at least getting the basics right, that that's the idea he likes. Fraud, fraud, fraud. Can I say it any clearer? Doesn't believe in anything, anything. He's in over his head, too. He's in over his head, for sure. So, anyway, go ahead, man. Keep taking shots at the number one podcast host in America. Because guess what? At some point, Dave, he's not going to be so nice anymore. I can't wait for that day if it comes. There's going to be some day where he sees some dumb pot shot you took at him, and he's like, you know what, son? Gloves are off. Because Joe Rogan really is the nicest guy in the world. He really is. I mean, what, what you see on air is exactly what he's like off air. Sweetest guy, genuinely likes people, genuinely has friends from across the political spectrum. But there are lines, there are lines, and he's been damn kind to Dave Rubin to this point, not calling him out by name and saying, you know what, you're full of it. And I think you're a fraud, and I think you're a grifter. And nobody should take you seriously. 
there might come a day where he snaps and he says something like that. If you keep taking your pot shots there, Dave. So, please proceed. Okay. Let me take a break. When we come back, we still got a lot of stuff. I got one more story involving Joseph Rogan, and then we'll go to um, Biden's campaign, particularly in Michigan, is not looking good. Stay right there.
bitch. All right, I'm back. Was I eating waffles? Yes. Am I still eating waffles? Yes. <laughs> Tell you what, though. Motherfucking delicious, baby. Fucking delicious. Mm. Mm, 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 mm. Okay. <clears throat> Where was I? Story number seven. So Joe Rogan was in the news a lot recently because President Trump responded to a tweet advocating that Joe Rogan host a presidential debate, and Trump was basically like, I'm down. I'd love for Joe Rogan to host a presidential debate. Um, So, you know, a lot of outlets covered it, and mainstream media really dislikes Rogan, I think for a number of reasons. Remember when Bernie played the video of, like, the tepid endorsement of him, and then the media did a smear campaign of Joe Rogan, You know, ever since then, it's just been their gloves off with Rogan and they hate him. Well, this new thing that just happened, which I'm about to show you, I actually think this highlights why the idea of of a Rogan-moderated debate is actually awesome and it would be so much better than, you know, traditional mainstream media-hosted debates because... I'm not overstating it when I say I think that they're as bad as any human being could possibly be with debates when you talk about most mainstream outlets. Actually, surprisingly, the least bad outlet hosting debates, it's Fox News. And the reason why is the other outlets are afraid of being accused of having a liberal bias, so they ask really stupid questions, and they're trying to avoid the charge of being liberally biased. Fox News gets more leeway because everybody knows they're the right-wing outlet, so sometimes they actually ask real pressing questions. And so they're the least bad of all of them, but they're all bad, honestly. They're all bad. So a Joe Rogan-moderated debate would be kind of awesome. Well, now, you know, everybody's hanging on every word that he says because he's, he's got the new Spotify deal, and so he's in the public eye even more. And um, he made a claim on the podcast with, with Douglas Murray And the claim was not true. It was that there's these, like, left-wing agitators starting the forest fires um, in in the West, whether it's Oregon or, you know, California or wherever. It's like, oh, there are these left-wingers, like these Antifa people starting fires. Well, that turns out to be a a claim that originally came from these, you know, right-wing extremists who are trying to just pin stuff on the left. And, um, but Rogan repeated the claim. And then there was, you know, people saw that and were like, that's not true. And so this is what happened next. Rogan tweeted, I fucked up on the podcast with Douglas Murray and said the people got arrested lighting fires in Portland. That turns out to not be true. I was very irresponsible not looking into it before I repeated it. I read one story about a guy getting arrested for lighting fires. Turned out to be, true, but the other shit I read about people getting arrested for lighting fires in Portland was not true. I repeated it without looking into it, and it was, really fucking, it was a really fucking stupid mistake that won't happen again. 
Yeah, so listen, this story alone, I really think it says a lot because virtually all of the mainstream media outlets helped lie us into the Iraq war. They helped lie us into it. And most of those people who did that dirty work not only are still in media, they're in media and they're some of the highest paid people. So in, media, in corporate media, people fail up. The people who do the propaganda for the government, who manufacture consent, those are the people who are viewed as the serious people and they get promoted. All the people who did the opposite, who, who called out the war and said, I don't know about this, Phil Donahue. I think he had like the number one rated show on MSNBC, and he was kicked off. Why? Because he wasn't supporting the war. Jesse Ventura was about to have a show, I believe, on MSNBC, and when they found out he was against the war, they axed him. There was this, this jingoistic feeling in the country at the time, and they wanted the media to reflect that. They didn't want the media to be critical of power. And so corporate media as an institution is just terrible. And you could say, well, Kyle, it was a long time ago, so maybe they're better now. No, they're not. I mean, look at, look at what they did with Russiagate. You have this president, this Republican president, who's a rich target for critique. They managed to find the one critique of him that's total nonsense, that he's somehow a Manchurian candidate doing the bidding of Russia, even as he escalates with Russia. And people, fake story after fake story after fake story was promoted. And so they're terrible. Mainstream media is terrible at their job. Like, they're objectively bad at doing the thing that they're supposed to do. Now, in comes Joe Rogan. He's not trying to compete with them. He's not. He's a podcaster and a comedian and a cage-fighting commentator. This is what he does. And he's open about that, you know? But the fact that on his podcast, he just has conversations with people and talks like a normal person and gives people his opinions, like, that actually makes him a lot better than virtually every opinion commentator in mainstream media. And this shows he has more integrity than they do. They lied us into a war, never apologized for it, and have kept getting promoted. He said something on his show that turned out to not be true, and he immediately comes out and says, wow, turns out that wasn't true. My bad. This is called integrity. That's what this is. So I really do think that this story shows that, yes, you could argue, hey, what credentials does he have to host a, a presidential debate? I mean, that's a fair point, and he would probably agree with you. He'd be like, yeah, I don't, why would I be, this isn't my expertise, this isn't my field. So, yeah, he'd probably agree with you on that. But what's for damn sure is that he would do a much better job than everybody who already moderates all these presidential debates. Because I've seen every single one of them, and they're almost all terrible across the board. Save a handful of examples, they're almost all terrible across the board. And so the people with all the credentials are the people who are most well-versed in pushing the propaganda. The people who are most well-versed in not challenging the establishment and power. So it turns out a regular dude, your average Joe, no pun intended, 
would actually probably be a hell of a lot better at it. And so I don't think the idea is crazy at all. And in step all the people who want to, you know, pull up his old tweets or old bits that sounded wrong in one way or another. In step all those people to try to pin that to him and act like you're canceled and you can't be a serious person because of these things you said. And what I w- all I would say to these people is fine. You want to go down that path? Then you absolutely have to also cancel every single person who pushed for the Iraq war, right? To tell an off-color joke is one thing. To help lie the country into a war that killed a minimum 200,000 innocent civilians in Iraq, that's way worse, right? So if you're going to cancel him, you've got to cancel all those other people. And even more so, above and beyond, how much you cancel Joe. So, listen, he'll, he'll admit it. He's a regular guy who's going to get things wrong from time to time. But at least he has the integrity to correct himself when he feels like he's wrong. And that goes way above and beyond anything you see in corporate media. Okay. Time Magazine has an article on Biden's campaign, particularly as it pertains to swing states um, like Michigan. And look at this bombshell. So the, the top highlighted part, it says, the Biden campaign in Michigan refused to confirm the location of any physical field offices despite repeated requests. They say they have supply centers for handing out signs, but would not confirm those locations. The campaign also decided, or also, excuse me, declined to say how many of their Michigan staff were physically located there. My favorite is at the bottom. What do you mean by on the ground? That's what a Democratic Party official said when asked. What do you mean by on the ground? Yeah, so... Um, it appears like they're not knocking on doors. There's another article that's basically claiming as the Trump people are knocking on doors all across the country, the Biden people are just not doing that as a strategy. And there are no Biden campaign offices in Michigan. Seems like a pretty big bombshell, doesn't it? Now, there's so much to say about this. But actually, first, I'm going to take you in a direction that you're not expecting, which is this. I'm having flashbacks. Some people are saying, oh, my God, I'm having flashbacks to Hillary Clinton in 2016, where she wasn't campaigning in these states, and these states were colossally important, and she lost because she lost the Rust Belt. That's why she lost. So a lot of people are like, oh, my God, I'm having flashbacks to 2016. It's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. Well, (laughs) you know what I'm having flashbacks to? The primary. It was like the week leading up to Super Tuesday – And there were all these articles, I think it was a New York Times or Washington Post big article that was like, oh, my God, Biden's campaign doesn't exist in a lot of the upcoming states. There is no infrastructure on the ground, none, no offices in a lot of these states. It was a huge story. I remember covering it, talking about it. Everybody, all the Bernie people were like, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's really a wrap. Like, it's over. We're going to win. Well, (laughs) You know what happened in the rest of that story now, don't you? He ended up winning in a lot of these states where he had no campaign office. In fact, not only winning, crushing. 
So, I mean, listen, the extent of my commentary is this. Could this be indicative of a 2016-type misstep? Sure, of course again. It's very possible that the people whose gut reaction is in that direction, that they're right and they're onto something, and that Biden should be doing more in these states, and he should have more campaign offices there, boots on the ground, knocking on doors. That's absolutely possible. But, but you have to concede it's also possible that this is just like the primary. And in the primary, he was in his basement taking a nap, and uh, was crushing in the process. Because fundamentally what happened in the primary, the dynamic that won out, is that even though people preferred Bernie, they preferred him on policy, they liked him more, when they got in that voting booth, their number one concern was beating Trump. And so they did this meta game where they were like, I need to pick the person that I think most other people would pick as the safe anti-Trump choice. And so they all picked Biden. It's possible that this is just like that. And that even though... Trump is going to go all over those states and he has people knocking on doors and he has offices, Biden could still do what he did in the primary. It's absolutely possible. A lot of these things, there's so many factors that go into these elections and it's so hard to gauge what the, the key factors will be and what will really put somebody over the edge versus not. So what I could tell you for sure is the numbers are looking still a lot better for Biden than they were for Hillary at this point. They just are. I shared something the other day. The average of polls in Texas has Trump up like one or two points when he was up like 10 points on Hillary in Texas in 2016. And there's little facts like that from all across the country. Is the race over? No. Trump still has a 25 to 28% chance of winning but I still think Biden's in a, in a more comfortable position than Hillary was. And also because I think Trump's strategy is just abysmal this time around, when in 2016 I thought he had a legitimately good strategy. So that's still one of the main things I come back to, is that I don't see the signs of life from the Trump administration that are necessary for him to come back and win. Um, but yeah, is this something that's not good? Yes. Is it going to be a determinative factor? I don't know. But I lean in the direction at this moment of no. I wouldn't be surprised if it is, but at this moment, no. And actually, the polls have Biden up comfortably in Michigan. So it's almost like, yeah, bad example. You know, you're talking, it's not like with Hillary where it was a lot tighter. The polls were a lot tighter in these places with Hillary than it is with Biden. So could be like 2016, or it could just be an indicator Ask any Bernie supporter, because <laughs> we all remember that story of like, oh, he's got no campaign offices in these places. And then it was like, um, just curb stomp city, son. Like, <laughs> immediately, like, boom, just, oh, really? What were you saying about me not having campaign offices? Looks like I just beat you by 22 points, bitch. <laughs> like, that, we were like, oh. So, yeah. I think that there are probably a number of ways to win elections. You know, that's not the most groundbreaking insight, but look at how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did it when she knocked on all the doors, um, you know, in her district. That's one way of doing it. Literally wore out the sole of her shoes as a result of it. Yes, that's one way of doing it. Maybe that works better for at the congressional level versus if it was at the, the state level, if you're running for U.S. Senate and you got a campaign in the whole state, maybe it's different for that. But yeah, for president, it's, I think for president, it's almost like, 
unique in the sense that success has a thousand fathers. So there's a, a bunch of ways you could do it where you could be successful. And I've actually, some of the strategies recently from Biden's people, I thought were pretty good, where he did the whole, like, I'm going to go give a speech on, like, manufacturing and outsourcing. That was good. Now he's taking the Supreme Court fight and m- focusing specifically on the health care aspect of the Supreme Court. Like, basically, if Trump gets the pick, 20 million people are going to lose their health care. 20 million more people. Again, I think that's a good strategy. So he's got little things here and there that I actually think are a lot better than Hillary's stuff. But anyway, yet to be seen. But this is definitely noteworthy, definitely worthy of a story in a segment. Could be a sign of 2016 type, you know, failing, or it could be a sign of the primary where it doesn't even matter that he's not knocking on doors. It doesn't even matter that he's got no campaign offices in Michigan. Okay, next. So Joe Biden had another gaffe that the right is pouncing on. Let's take a look. COVID-19, which are well beyond what they should be. It's estimated that 200 million people have died, probably by the time I finish this talk. 200 million people have died by the time I finish this talk. That's what he said. Now, the right is really running with this. They think they got a gem here that they're going to use on old Joe. Um, Is Joe clearly struggling cognitively? Yes. I will freely admit that. I've been admitting that for a long time. He's sunsetting. That's for sure. I have no doubt about that. Here's, Here's another interesting thought. He's had a facelift. You go back and look at, you know, what he looked like in 2010, 2012 or whatever, right? Maybe even later than that, maybe 2014, 2015 as well. He's got a big old turkey neck, you know. He's got like loose skin. And um, so he got a facelift. Now, imagine what he would look like if he didn't get the facelift. Imagine if he still, he just left his face as is. His turkey neck would be even bigger. When you mix that with the cognitive decline, you see like, you see a physical decline and you see a cognitive decline and everybody would be like, oh my God, that's grandpa and he's on the way out. But since they did the, the facelift, he, it, he does look younger with it. I mean, there are things you could critique, but he definitely looks younger with the facelift than if he didn't do it. So if he didn't have the facelift, he would look terrible. It's almost like, it's almost like thinking of Trump without the blonde hair, the comb over and, um, and, and the tan. A lot of people might think, oh, he'll look better like that. Mm, they've done, I've seen the pictures where they try to make it look like, here's what he looks like now, here's what he would look like in that scenario. And I think he looks worse. I think he looks really bad. <laughs> I mean, he looks silly now, but he looks just bad if you get rid of the whole, like, you know, thing he does. Um, so anyway, yes, he's, he's struggling. Biden is absolutely struggling. But here's the thing. This is not the sick burn that Republicans think it is. You want to know why? Because every single time you critique him and you correct him on this, you're telling the world that 200,000 Americans have died from COVID-19. 
There are other gaffes to pick apart from Joe Biden where you're not reminding the country of the abysmal failure of the Trump administration. Every single time they, they run this clip, they have to be like, Haha, what an idiot. It's only 200,000 Americans that are dead as a result of COVID-19 in America. And then everybody's going to be like, that's still a lot, dog. Oh, my God. So just to put that in perspective, the number of Americans who died from COVID-19, it's equivalent to more than 66 9-11s. It's the equivalent to more than 45 Iraq wars. To be clear, I'm talking about just the American casualties on that one. Because obviously once you include all the civilians we killed, that number skyrockets. But it's 45, more than 45 Iraq wars. It's even, this is stunning, this is stunning, the number of Americans who died in, co- in the COVID-19 pandemic, it's about half the U.S. casualties of World War II. You do not, if you're a Republican, you do not, by any stretch of the imagination, want to focus anybody anywhere near this stuff at all. In fact, so much so, I'm almost a little skeptical in thinking maybe the Biden team did this on purpose. This is actually a trick that Obama used in um, 2012 in a debate with Mitt Romney, where he said something along the lines of, you know, Governor Romney ranks, I think it's like 46th in whatever whatever the, the thing was. It was 46th. When he was a governor, his state was 46th out of 50 in whatever, fill in the blank. I don't remember what, this, what the specific issue was. But what happened was the media did the fact check that night, and in all the newscasts they said, oh, Barack Obama got that wrong. Romney wasn't 46th out of 50. He was actually 48th out of 50 in this category. And so then it amplified that statement where all the media outlets covered it and said, oh, Romney's 48th out of 50 in this? and it hurt Mitt Romney. It amplified a negative thing about him. So, if you say, hey, 200 million Americans died of COVID-19, everybody's got to say, and there's got to be articles written about it across the board. It's not 200 million. That would be a majority of the country. It's only 200,000. That's going to hurt. That's going to hurt the right. I'm sorry. Yes, even though he's having cognitive issues, for sure, it's like, we already know that. You know what I mean? Like, when you already know it, it's, not, it's like, it's not really news. Yeah, I get it. He's, sun, he's sundowning. Obvious. And then, and it's like, the substance of this is, yeah, not 200 million, 200,000. And by the way, how many of us haven't said million, confused million and billion, for example? Thousand and million, that's a little different. But million and billion, all the time I do that shit, I'm sure. But go ahead, keep reminding people that we have 200,000 and rising, and rising American deaths. This election could ultimately be a referendum on Trump's handling of COVID, as well as the economy in relation to that. That's probably what the main thing in this election will be, and all the polls show that right now. And certainly on COVID, he is waxing 
Trump. He is straight up Draxin them squounced. That's what he's doing. If you get that reference, you and me are friends. That's for sure. <laughs> he is Draxin them squounced. Um, so I think the right is being silly by focusing on this. It ain't going to go well for you. You want to move as far away from COVID-related stuff as you possibly can, for sure. I don't know what would actually be beneficial for these guys to talk about now on the right, because COVID, no. The economy, no, because you're doing a terrible job on that. Um, law and order stuff, no, because Biden's beating you on that, too. I guess all you can do is just hammer away on his record, on Biden's record, nonstop, nonstop, and still try to somehow portray yourself as an outsider, I guess. But this ain't working, and even though Biden had a colossal brain fart here, I think this hurts the right more. All right, next. Joe Biden absolutely trolled the shit out of Trump on Twitter. Take a look at this. If I lose to him, I don't know what I'm going to do. I will never speak to you again. You'll never see me. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. I think that was good. I think that was good. That yeah, was a cute little, cute little move there. That uh, that some one staffer working with Biden deserves a raise and deserves to be promoted. Whoever came up with that one, you're thinking on your feet. I like it. It's clever. It's it's kind of similar to something Trump would do. You know, just a quick little troll job. One, two, three, and uh, it'll have a positive outcome. Because by the way, everybody's. Everybody who's not already hardcore MAGA is going to watch that and be like, that's sort of what's up. In fact, when that moment happened in Trump's rally, I saw a lot, a lot of stuff on my Twitter feed, like, was basically saying, like, that's what's up. <laughs> of course. Go away. You're annoying. And so I guess, it, I mean, it was kind of like low-hanging fruit. It was obvious. It was right there. Like, you could run with it. But usually, Democratic campaigns don't really do the things that they're supposed to do or don't go for an easy, like there's a layup, there's a layup here, some quick little points. And, um, you know, I think that lands. I I think it's a good troll job. And I'm actually pleasantly surprised because most of the time, again, I feel like Democratic campaigns, as a general rule, are more like by the book and doing the things that they think they're supposed to do as opposed to just being like kind of clever and in the moment and uh, creative and adjust, doing adjustments on the fly and being plugged in in a way that's not fake, you know? Because most of the time you see them trying to be, like, plugged in, it annoys you. Like Trump or uh, Biden playing Despacito on his phone, trying to do outreach to the Latino community. Like, oh, God, man, reel it in a little bit. What are you doing? Or putting, putting them in, the, in a, a video game, putting Kamala and Joe in a video game. It's like, okay, don't, you can't cross the line into pandering. You have to avoid that as much as possible. But to be plugged in in a way that's not condescending, pedantic, patronizing, that works. That wins elections. So I, I do think they struck the right balance here. 
uh, from a strategic perspective. But even substantively speaking, yeah, Don, go away. But by the way, he will never do that. <laughs> that man is fundamentally incapable of being outside of the spotlight. Just absolutely, positively, 100%, without a doubt, thrives off it, loves it. I've told you guys this story before because there was great reporting on it at the time, but when Trump got the nomination, he reached out to John Kasich and said, listen, we want you to be VP, and we basically want you to run the country, and I'm going to go around the country and basically do rallies all the time trying to get people signed on to the MAGA agenda, and you, know, you dot all the I's and cross all the T's and do all the work, and I'll do the rallies and make, be the figurehead and basically take all the credit. Um, and Kasich was like, no, I'm not. No, I don't want to do that. But what does that tell you? It tells you something we already kind of knew about Trump, which is he lives for his favorite thing is either is watching Fox News and doing rallies because he gets the love and adoration of the crowd, which, you know, is something that is a little bit like a drug. You know, I have to admit, I've done public speaking myself, clearly. And yeah, there is something about when you say something and a whole crowd is like, it's like, oh, this feels good. I like this a lot. And, you know, Trump's got to fill that more than any other public persona ever, this guy's got a, a void deep inside that he's trying to fill. And he's going to fill it with doing nonstop rallies and talking about Crooked Hillary and Sleepy Joe and Slow Joe and, you know, all this. So he ain't going anywhere. If Trump loses, first of all, he's going to make a big stink about losing where he's going to question the legitimacy of the election. And that'll spark a constitutional crisis and it'll be a total mess and this country will go to hell. Um, but even if he loses and eventually concedes... He ain't going anywhere. He might run again in 2024. Um, he might start like a Trump TV network or something, might work for Fox News. Or There's a million things that he could do and he would do, and all of them involve the spotlight for sure. Politico article broke my brain and my spirit at the same time. Democrats lose control of marijuana messaging. Pandemic worries overpower Democrats' original selling points of criminal justice reform and broad national support. Removing federal penalties for marijuana looked like an easy win for Democrats two weeks ago, but the momentum has stalled. Democrats have been scared off by Republicans' use of the marijuana bill to bludgeon Democrats on the lack of a coronavirus deal. And moderates in tight races worry it will be linked to hits they're already taking over the defund the police movement. So instead of embracing the progressive messaging of this bill as an election win, House leaders are now thinking about punting marijuana until after November 3rd. Guys, this is incredible. So what Democrats are doing is they're taking an issue where, what's the number now? It's got to be almost 70% of the country that's saying, legalize recreational marijuana. It is such an overwhelming majority. It's out of this world. We already have a number of states where it's legalized. Now, technically, it's illegal at a federal level, so it's just by the good graces of the federal government that they're letting the states experiment, basically. Um, but this is a snowball effect. We see where this is going. There's no going back. 
So Democrats, now far be it from them to do the actually popular thing of legalizing recreational marijuana. If I'm not mistaken, because Chuck Schumer said this on Twitter the other day, they're not trying to legalize, they were going to decriminalize, which just means get rid of the federal penalties. Legalize means make it so that the federal government is okay with you know, marijuana being sold in official stores, CVS, Walgreens, whatever, marijuana small businesses all around the country. So decriminalize and legalize are a little different. Legalize is going all the way so that you can sell it legally and it's fine. Decriminalize is not that you could sell it legally and it's fine. It's just removing the federal penalties um, associated with selling it. So a little bit different. It's a little bit weaker to decriminalize versus legalize. But nonetheless, the Democrats take this position, water it down a little bit, say, okay, we're going to do a bill where we decriminalize, and then they back off of it. Why? Well, the first reason is semi-legit, but not really, okay? The first reason is the Republicans could be like, what about the coronavirus? Don't you want to do nothing on the coronavirus? Why would you focus on this issue? It seems like you're not focusing on the important stuff. Now, the reason why that's BS is because the Republicans are not for any of the things that would actually help with COVID-19, like more stimulus checks, universal basic income, Medicare for all, like the things that would definitely help with COVID-19. Republicans aren't on board with it. So you can't chastise the left and berate the left when it's like, hey, we need to focus on this serious issue that I'm on the wrong side of completely, because that makes no sense. But yes, I do, get, I do get prioritizing and maybe we should do stimulus checks first or whatever. I totally get that. But they're just, Republicans are just using that argument to deflect. That's all they're doing because they're not for the right things when it comes to COVID, obviously. Okay, but the second reason, I mean, this is the one that I, it drives me crazy. Uh, Dave Weigel on Twitter said, like, this is peak Democrat brain. So true, peak Democrat brain. There are Democratic politicians who are saying in response to this, wait, we can't try to legalize marijuana right now or decriminalize marijuana right now. Because then Republicans will say, you guys are not for law and order, and this is tied to the defund the police movement, and defunding the police is not popular. So by legalizing marijuana, you're anti-police, and you're siding with the defund the police people. Bruh. (laughs) Bruh. And some of the Democrats took debate, and they were like, oh, my God, they're right. we got to not do this now because then we're going to be tied to the defund the police movement. For the love of God, for once in your life, look at a poll and digest it. If nearly 70% of the country says legalize recreational marijuana, 70% of the country, you're on the winning side of that issue. Have it, has it ever occurred to you that Republicans can make an argument and be wrong And also, you can argue back. Democrats are always like, let's outmaneuver the right by giving in to everything they say. (laughs) This is their mindset. I got an idea. The right won't be able to attack us if we're also right-wingers and we do everything they want. No, because they'll still attack you even if you do everything they want. Have you seen the entire Obama presidency where he did their health care plan and they still treated him like a Marxist Kenyan? These guys are crazy. They stand for nothing. They believe in nothing. They even they stumbled on an issue where they were right. Do something on marijuana. Legalize it would be better, but okay, decriminalize it. I'll take it as a first step. Go ahead, do it. 
I don't know because maybe, see, what happened was the sun was in my eyes and I seen the shadow got on the thing and what it, they are going to say we're with the defund the police people and that's bad. That argument makes so little sense. It doesn't even matter how much Republicans try to hammer home. Americans would be like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. If an overwhelming majority of Democrats want to legalize marijuana, and I'm sure in some polls it's a majority of Republicans or close to a majority of Republicans, people want this. And you're going to back off of it because of some terrible framing tied to defund the police? Get out of here. Get out of here. Do it. Do something popular and then brag about it for once in your life. Are you kidding me? If Democrats pass, forget decriminalization. If Democrats pass through the House legalizing marijuana and they did a big full court press and a blitz in the media to be like, we gave 70% of the American people what they want. Of course you'd see a bump in the polls because that's popular and you're doing something good. I know you guys are used to not doing anything good, but this would be good. And then you could brag about it. Oh, man. The entire, like, Democratic congressional culture is rotten to its core. None of them are leaders. None of them are intelligent. None of them have a vision. They're all just, everything is, is, is weak and framed through how will the Republicans react. And just, this is what happens when you have no core convictions. You're just like, you're so easily swayed with the dumbest arguments. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and then when I come back, I got Alex Jones for you. You don't want to miss that.
Alright, bitch. I'm back. Let's bring this home. Motherfucker, bring this home. Motherfucker. Okay. Okay. It's hot in the studio. What the fuck is going on? All right, let's talk about Alex Jones. Alex Jones has a theory about the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This ought to be good. He's leaving the marching orders. And, and, and this, you know, I talked to a uh, White House advisor as well, not just two of the White House lawyers today. Just in the last 30 minutes, when well, you already lied, I was talking to him. And they said, look, the really sick math is they had her on life support. They could keep her alive with adrenaline and growth hormone and blood transfusions. And it was her wish to go ahead and die to get the vote out as a blood sacrifice. Because her main mission was to get abortion, which she helped get through. And that blood sacrifice that Schumer talked about, if, you know, if you want a war, quit letting us have the blood of the babies. We need that satanic energy. And so this Skeksy, who went on to, you know, obviously made her maker in the ninth circle of uh, Hades today. I mean, there's no doubt. Ruth Gator Bensberg, you know, who helped kill millions of babies. She's, she's, she's facing God's day, and we're not going to ask with God's judgment. I think it's pretty obvious that vengeance is the Lord's. But this monstrous pig demon uh, who presided over all this carnage and destruction of America, you know, she is witnessing her own destruction and own defeat right now, and I tell you, it's quite delicious. Well, that's cool, you know, just celebrating the death of somebody. I, by the way, this is a uh, we've had this discussion and this debate in left wing circles for quite a while as to what's the right way to move forward when somebody passes. And um, I've always been of the opinion you can criticize the record. There's no problem with criticizing the record, but I've never I've never rejoiced in somebody's death because I'm I'm anti death as a matter of principle. <laughs> so I don't like it even when it happens to people who are political enemies. I don't celebrate death. I think that's really weird and, like, strange when anybody does it. And clearly Alex is doing it here. Um, He called her a monstrous pig demon and talks about the carnage and destruction she brought on America. My guess is Alex Jones couldn't name three decisions Ruth Bader Ginsburg made over the course of her career off the top of his head. He looks it up, he can name however many he wants. He couldn't name three off the top of his head. I really don't think he can. And that says a lot about Alex Jones. <laughs> With how much he's, he's so full of thoughts on this stuff, but it's like, you don't even know what the fuck you're talking about, dude. You don't even know what you're talking about. Um, which leads to the main uh, points here. He said that she died to get out the vote as a, quote, blood sacrifice. Counterpoint. Maybe she died because she's 87 years old and she had cancer in the late 90s and already fought it off a bunch, and then eventually you die. I mean, the type of cancer she had, you're not supposed to live, like, more than two years. And she got cancer in, like, the late 90s. The fact that she survived all the way to 2020 is kind of amazing. But, no, he's saying... She could have hung on with all these different things, but decided, no, 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 I got to go as a blood sacrifice. No, 
Are you kidding me? It would have been way more politically advantageous to the Democrats if she died after the next election. Like, Biden wins and he comes to power. That's when, if she were to pass away then, because then it's guaranteed that Biden would get to fill the seat, whereas now she passed away under the Trump administration and the Republicans might be able to fill that seat. Now, maybe they won't. A lot of it, there's a lot of things going on, and it is really close to the election. But, you know, it, it's very politically advantageous to the Republicans right now because they could really lock up that court for a generation, which would be devastating. Because even a potential Democratic president and Democratic Congress, they could do all these great things and then have it all struck down by a conservative court. And the court could say this is unconstitutional. So what is he talking about? Like, why, why does everything have to be a conspiracy? Why does everything have to be a conspiracy? Um, and then he also, talking about Chuck Schumer, he says, we need that satanic energy. We need the blood of babies. Like, what do, you, do you think Democratic politicians are, like, meeting up on the weekends and chugging baby blood? Is that what you think, Alex? Because that's what it sounds like you think. Or am I mishearing it? Or am I not getting it? Am I being too, too unfair in my interpretation of what you're saying? But to me... That sounds like it's what he's saying, and that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. So, what a goofball, man. People, people watch him and, and think, like, some of this true. Like, that he's, he's saying things that are verifiable, fact-checkable. <laughs> he's obviously an unhinged dude, and it comes across in virtually everything he says these days. Okay. All right, next. So the U.S. is increasing our military presence in the Middle East. Yahoo says the following. Pentagon sending troops to Syria after clashes between U.S. and Russian military. The Pentagon is deploying a small number of U.S. troops to Syria after a series of escalating encounters between the U.S. and Russian militaries. According to three U.S. defense officials, the troops and vehicles will serve as a show of presence to discourage the Russian military from crossing into the eastern security area where U.S. coalition and Syrian Democratic forces operate, the officials said. The additional troops will include six Bradley fighting vehicles and fewer than 100 soldiers operating in northeast Syria on a 90-day deployment, U.S. officials said. These actions and reinforcements are a clear sign to Russia to adhere to mutual de-confliction de processes, processes and for Russia and other parties to avoid unprofessional, unsafe, and provocative actions in northeast Syria. So, again, the headline is, Pentagon sending troops to Syria after clashes between U.S. and Russian military. See, now would be a good time to scream at the hawkish Republican president to de-escalate. Now would be a good time to talk about pulling the troops out. Now would be a good time to talk about avoiding fighting at all costs with another nuclear-armed power. But none of the Democrats are going to say that. You want to know why? Because flies in the narrative of Trump being Putin's puppet. So they're going to ignore the fact that we're escalating with Russia right now. 
because that doesn't suit the narrative. The narrative is he's Vladimir Putin's puppet. He does whatever he wants. That's fundamentally untrue, total BS, but this is what the Democrats believe. So now there's no opposition. Trump can be as hawkish as he wants against Russia, and there's no opposition where they say, hey, maybe you should make peace with Russia. There's no opposition. See, this is a problem. This is a very big problem. But beyond that, now they say, oh, we're adding, you know, fewer than 100 soldiers to the area. I think there's already 500 there. So yet again, we could be seeing the beginning of what's called mission creep. This happens in Iraq. This happens in Afghanistan. This happens all throughout the Middle East. We, oh, we'll send some, and then you send a little more, a little more, and a little more, and next thing you know, you got thousands there. You know, and Trump's yo-yoing the troop levels in Iraq and Afghanistan now, dropping it from, you know, whatever it is, 8,000 to 4,000 thereabouts. So what's crazy to me is that the military-industrial complex has such a hold on the two parties that nobody's out there arguing, hey, let's just pull out. Let's just get out of the Middle East. Nobody's arguing that. And um, that's a shame. A lot of people have died because no politician is really taking a stand for non-intervention and peace. And now we're seeing a very dangerous escalation because there have been skirmishes between U.S. troops and Russian troops. And sending more U.S. troops there is only going to increase that, the likelihood. And by the way, let's remember, Trump even admitted, oh, we're in Syria to take the oil. So all this risking escalation with another nuclear armed power to take more oil from the Middle East. This is what Trump said. It's not me coming up with it. He said it. That's why we're in Syria, to take the oil. So we're violating international law. We're the bad guys in that situation. Again, nobody, nobody really talks about this stuff. I've only seen a handful of articles on it, and mainstream media outlets didn't really cover it too much. It should be a big story, should be a big story, but the things that should be never are because our national attention span is abysmal and the people who give us the information are mostly propagandists. Okay, final story of the day, y'all. TYT's Michael Shore spoke to a bunch of people at a Trump rally, and um, the comments are interesting. The fact that you call socialism, oh, no, it's socialism. No, 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 this is socialism. Excuse me. Socialism is a PC word for communism. Get it, people. Get it. He says he's not a socialist, but all of his ideas sound like socialist ideas, and everybody around him are like socialists, and they all support that. And he, I think that well, as soon as he's in office, he will start pushing socialism if he was in office. They're the devil. they got a lot of Satan in them. They're out for their own good. They have no interest in the United States of America. And the day there, who's the day? The Democrats, Biden, Pelosi. All of them, uh, they just got a lot of evil in them. They are not in the best interest of the United States of America. I support Trump because he's not a socialist. I'm a foreigner in America. I live in two socialist countries, and I'm on nothing to do with socialism. Do you see Joe Biden as a socialist? <laughs> the people that are handling him are socialists, yes. Yeah. Well, he's, he's so corrupt. Um, he wants to have people you know, take 
take their guns away. He's actually had uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke, you know, supposedly to be in charge of, of taking the guns away. And, uh, yeah, I just don't want to have that confrontation if I don't need to. He calls himself Catholic. He's pro, pro abortion and pro same sex marriage. How Catholic is that? And on top of that, you know, who he surrounds himself with as well. So you have two choices. You either have law and order or you have anarchy and chaos. That's it. That's your two choices. And who is the, who's the law and order and who's the anarchy? Come on. Do you believe that uh, Joe Biden would be a socialist president? Yes, I do. I totally believe he'd be a socialist president, and that's not what we need here. It's just a matter of, you know, the liberals rigging the system for him to win because, you know, and especially the electoral college. But if you talk to the majority of Americans, they support Trump. They're just, you know, they're silenced right now. It all comes down to policy. And Joe Biden's policies, maybe they're religious, but they're definitely not Christian. And, I mean, maybe he goes to church. I don't know. But the things that he supports and the things he believes in, like he believes in is not for the people and it's not for God, I don't think. Would you pray for uh, President Biden? Should that be? I pray for President Biden right now. I pray for him. I pray for Kamala Harris. Uh, I pray for everybody in our capital, Democrats, uh, Republicans, Independents. You know, uh, we're all uh, under God. You know, nobody's different. Would, is, uh, would you pray for President Biden? Well, I pray for President Biden's soul. I think he's ill, so I hope that he gets his life right with Christ before he leaves this earth. But that's all I can think about. tough to watch these things. It really is. You know, I, everybody knows who, who listens to or watches this show regularly that one of the things I take most pride in is deconversions, which basically means you take people who have these, you know, rather extreme beliefs, and over time, you get them to listen, and then slowly but surely, um, you convince them otherwise. And again, one of the things I take most pride in uh, with this show but when you watch stuff like this, it shakes your faith just a little bit. Because I know when there's a chance, and I know when there's no chance. And with most of those characters, maybe some, there is a shot. But with most of them, TFG all day long, baby. TFG, too far gone. And that sucks, you know. I, I, I wish that it was possible to deconvert anybody and everybody. But I'm also a pragmatist and a realist. And I know when I'm fighting a losing battle. <laughs> and with some of them, it would be a losing battle. So let's run through some of the points they made there. I like the first lady who says, socialism is the PC word for communism. Um, I'm listening to this and I'm going, wouldn't it be great if Michael Schur, or anybody for that matter, any reporter, spoke to these people and they were like, do me a favor, can you define your terms for me, define your terms. So you talk about socialism, define it. What's the definition in your mind? My guess is they wouldn't really be able to answer it. They would just be like, it's bad and it's what the Democrats are. Okay, but what's, what's the actual definition? My guess is the closest any of them would get and some of them would, you know, some of them might be able to say this, but I think most wouldn't. They'd just be like, I don't know, big government or something? So the actual definition of socialism is a political and economic theory of social organization which advocates the means of production, distribution, and exchange should be owned or regulated by the community 
as a whole. I don't think any of them would get anywhere near that answer, okay? Um, Then there was one who says, talking about the Democrats, they're the devil, they got a lot of Satan in them. See, that's, that's one of the ones that I feel like there's, there's no hope. You're never going to convince that woman, no matter what. doesn't matter how much evidence, how much data, how solid your arguments are. See, people who, it, it, people who believe something, and it's more tied to culture than it is tied to rational thought and trying to figure stuff out, it's harder to deconvert people who are married to something as a result of culture. Because then it's not... It's not, you can't appeal to somebody with reason when they didn't get there through reason. Because it's like you are up against every experience and, and personal feeling that person has ever had. And you're not just going to flip a switch and change their entire life up to that point. If they believe something because of cultural brainwashing, then, you know, it's just, just too hard to undo it to to really unwind all that stuff um then my favorite is somebody said the people handling them handling biden are socialists no they're not i wish they were (laughs) because their point is oh like he's being handled by alexandria ocasio-cortez and bernie sanders and ilhan omar no he's not no he's not if anything it's the opposite i hate to say it but it's true he is using them for their popularity, giving them a couple pats on the head and a BS unity commission, and then he'll get elected and be a neoliberal corporatist and ignore virtually everything the left wants. So anything Biden is using them, they're not using Biden. You know, they haven't, like, gotten all their ideas into his head because then he'd be for Medicare for all and he's not. He'd be for legalizing marijuana and he's not. I wish he was, hand- he was being handled by the socialists. And let's be honest, in reality, all these people I just named, they're not socialists. They're social democrats which, again, is the hybrid system that you find in, like, Scandinavia, but far be it for me to talk nuance in a situation like this. Um, Then we got the Biden wants to take the guns away. Let me ask you a question. He was vice president for eight years. Why didn't they take the guns away? Unless your argument is, oh, Barack Obama stopped him from from taking the guns away. Is that your argument, that Barack Obama was good on that? My guess is they'll say no. So why did they not take the guns away? Guys, we know what they proposed. They do, like, well, you can go and look at the record, the congressional record, and look at the bills that were proposed. The furthest anybody ever goes is just like limiting high-capacity magazines and an assault weapons ban, which still leaves shotguns, rifles, handguns. Like, nobody's going to take your guns, bro. But again, it gets back to this, this drunk on Fox News, cultural brainwashing to the point where they believe things that are categorically untrue, but it doesn't stop them. And they still, the amazing thing is they still confidently talk to a reporter as if they know what they're talking about. Uh, one, one person says, oh, he's Catholic, but he's also pro-abortion and same-sex marriage. That's some Catholic. Listen, I was, I was raised Catholic. I'm not religious. Um, and yeah, there's, if you look at the opinion polls for Catholics, they're very mixed. It's almost like 50-50. 50% are Republican, 50% are Democratic. Um, and on a variety of these issues, there's differences of opinion. Is it, has it not occurred to people that sometimes with religion there's various interpretations, different viewpoints? No, because they, they are evangelical fundamentalists, and for them it's like you've got to be down the line with all this stuff. It's very rigid authoritarian type thinking. 
And then finally, one, the guy says, oh, in this election, it's a choice between law and order or anarchy and chaos. I almost wish sometimes I lived in a world that was as simplistic as these people make it out to be. You know, I got pure good over here and I got pure evil over here. Take your pick. You like good or you like evil? This is how these people think. Law and order or anarchy and chaos. I got news for you, dude. Both political parties are screwing you. (laughs) They are. I'm not saying they're equal in every way because they're not, but they certainly both represent Wall Street, represent the military-industrial complex, represent the billionaires and the corporations. They do not represent workers. So we live in an oligarchy. That's what we live in. And even your beloved Donald Trump is not working in your best interest. He's just not. But no, in in, in the minds of a lot of his hardcore supporters, Trump's law and order, Biden is anarchy and chaos. Uh, It wears you down, doesn't it, over time? Just trying to trying to navigate your way through this and pick apart a lot of this stuff and explain things. And it just, it wears you down because you realize that people are all over the place with a lot of their beliefs. And virtually all those people are really confused and I wish I could help them, but I don't think I can. All right. We are out of time, baby, and out of show. I love y'all. I'll talk to everybody soon. Stay safe out there. Peace.